Hello and welcome to the Lodgers, Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I am joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. We are uh, flying solo this week. I'm going to be real with you. Last week's episode got a little bit unwieldy on the uh, on the uh, behind-the-scenes side, so we were just like, dear God, let's keep this one simple. So hopefully we can keep y'all entertained with just our uh, our small selves. I hope uh, I hope all of you audience members out there listening just take a moment to like clap into your space in front of you uh, and thanks and to Simon Howell for spending uh, way too much time last week like piecing together our podcast from various disparate and unsynced and kind of broken down recordings because we had kind of like a Skype disaster. So uh, just thanks again to Simon for doing that. <laughs> well, I appreciate the thanks. I'm I'm trying to put it behind me, um, but uh, yeah. So part 10 of The Return. Let's do this. Let's get right into it. A little bit of a, uh, a svelte episode at a, uh, at, a, at a tidy 53 minutes with, I believe, an at least five minute musical section at the end, courtesy of Rebecca Del Rio. I don't know about you, but the first time, like I, as I mentioned before, I watch my episodes through Crave TV in Canada. And the first thing I do when the episode loads is I hover my mouse over to the end of the, of the progress bar to see how long the episode is. Uh, and I was like, ah, 5334, whatever it was. Lynch you, Lynch and Frost, you so-and-sos. You're, you're depriving me of that extra five minutes. Oh, well. So we had a little bit less content this week. My gut feeling about this episode is that it might be the most extreme episode so far in terms of... Mm-hmm. In terms of showcasing sort of the, mo- the goofiest and the goriest... Um, maybe not goriest, but the most unpleasant, the most the blackest parts of uh, of the return. Often with the sort of like rapid tonal whiplash we really associate with Lynch and Peaks in, in specifically. Um, yeah, in greater in greater portions and uh, and with greater disparity than I think is showcased in any of the other episodes. Is that your feeling as well? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, this episode was like a bumpy ride for me. I mean, I think Olivia and I watched it on the Sunday night, obviously, when it first came out, uh, before we watched Game of Thrones. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, which will continue to be the order, people. Um, but anyway, so uh, we watched it on Sunday night, and I wasn't really prepared for like how upsetting it was going to be. I mean, this is, um, you know, I think a common theme with Lynch is that... Uh, it goes to dark places and I, I always feel like I'm kind of more or less prepared. And then Lynch, you know, still manages to shock me really. I like, I, at first that shock for me kind of translated into me not liking the episode. I found it quite disjointed. Um, Olivier was really bothered by like how much of the episode was focused on the Mitchum brothers and how much it sort of seemed to like break down any of the other momentum in terms of plot that had been building up. Um, and these kinds of things, I I just found it so difficult to watch, and that I was like, this isn't fun, you know? Like, why mm-hmm. why why am I doing this? Like, this is just really <laughs> torturous. Why am I going through this? Um, but but then I sort of like gave it a couple of days and, and rewatched it again this morning, and like as much as you can say that I I love an episode like this because it's hard to say that you love something that is so difficult to watch. Um, I think this was a really strong episode in a lot of ways. I actually think it's maybe one of the, the I, it's hard to say. I, I don't know if I want to like rank things, but I, I would say it's very much at the at the upper end of, I think, what Lynch has been doing here. But it's much more kind of of a kindred spirit with something like Fire Walk With Me than it is with the original show, for sure. Yeah. the My feeling is that it's a stronger episode than last week's, but... Mm. Uh, I do have some misgivings that maybe maybe we should start with stuff we're 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 not sure about, or that we've maybe. I, I think there are certain aspects that you know, ten episodes in, I think we can say maybe like, okay, I'm good on that, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of them is uh, I have to say, having gotten another scene of um, of Jacoby's podcast. Mm, um yeah it, it's a good sequence and it's uh, it's nice to see uh, nadine reacting and all that and to see the uh, obviously the silent drape runners and the, the bizarre store name uh whatever it was um run run silent run drapes which is a reference to a film from like 19 
Uh, I have it here in 1956 called Run Silent Run Deep, which is like a Japanese uh, submarine World War II like Hollywood film with Burt Lancaster and Clark Gable in it. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, anyway. I, how did I know you'd have a note about that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was, it's, it's a fine sequence. It's very funny. It much like the, the initial sequence was doesn't really add anything new to the pot though, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and I think there are, there are maybe a few things there like that. Uh, hearing you talk about Jacoby, Simon, you actually just reminded me of a point that I had thought when I first watched the episode, um, and then I kind of forgotten. So I'm glad you reminded me of it, but which is basically this idea that I feel like this episode, particularly the first time you watch it, it's kind of brazen, uh, like how um, much it's putting in the spectator's face, just how little we've moved forward from mm-hmm. like the first sort of four episodes, basically. Like to me, it felt very much like Lynch and Frost basically pointing out we're exactly where we started. Like things were, nothing has really changed. We are not very far into this. And more than that, it's just sort of like, again, you know, the return, like this is maybe the different 16th different way in which you could talk about like the notion of a return. And I have a couple more even for this episode (laughs) later, but, um, but like this idea that we seem to be very much back at the beginning. And And I feel like the Jacoby stuff is sort of part of that. Like I, we're sort of back in the space where like violence against women is the predominant theme, which was so, it felt so present in those first bunch of episodes. Um, you know, like, yeah, again with Jacoby, again with these sorts of repetitions. I, I don't know. Like, how does that strike you? I, I, that doesn't, I'm not saying that justifies like the, the Jacoby sequence. Cause I kind of agree with you that like, at this point it's becoming a bit agitating, like how much we want things to happen. This, this for me was the first episode where I will admit that I had a couple of moments where I was like, I just want to see characters that I am familiar with. I just want to see those people. I want to see Audrey. I want to see, you know, like Ed, I was really hoping that uh, Ed Hurley would turn up in this episode, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I get it that this is just sort of part of going through it. And I'm sure I will feel differently about these episodes when we like look back at them after having seen the whole thing. But for now, I think it really matters that like, it's grading even on me. And I like, you know, I, I feel like I'm very open-minded about yeah, waiting yeah. for this stuff, but <laughs> yeah. Then you think anyway. about like how like the normie fans must be feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Indeed. The, if, if, if there is such a thing as a normie twin peaks fan, and I think there is. Um, yeah. I mean, that's certainly that crossed my mind as this episode was ending, especially since, as I noted, like the Rebecca Del Rio song starts like around the 47 minute mark. And I and I saw how much was left in the episode, and I'm like, okay, there's gonna be a stinger on this, right? And you know, it was a it was a lovely song, despite the auto tune, um, and despite Moby being on stage. Um, you thought it was auto tuned? Oh yeah, there was definitely a little bit auto. Like on those held notes, you can. It, huh. It's like it's a. I, I wish that I could unhear being able to hear auto tune, but I'm like quite certain that's what that was. Um, it just had that Simon. I'm just not sure about this. I feel like you're besmirching Rebecca Del Rio's good Look, Rebecca Del Rio's great, but I'm telling you, those long-held notes had that digital auto-tune sheen. Um, uh, interesting. All right. You, you definitely can hear it better than me, so I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah, but, and I, so, I'm not the only but... one who picked up on this. and It's possible we're all wrong. But um, actually, this is not really relevant, but I just wanted to bring it up because I thought it was funny. I, 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 I read a lot from a lot of other people who watched Twin Peaks and Game of Thrones in the same night. And I'm not going to be offering any Game of Thrones spoilers, but they noted, and I also sort of noted, that there it's sort of a, a fascinating study in contrast, because especially now that they've sort of passed the books, Game mm-hmm. of Thrones is really like a fan service delivery device, where they're, mm-hmm. they're really giving people everything they want, um, after years and years of being like quite slow and difficult and like, you know, giving you really horrifying stuff to watch. And Twin Peaks is sort of the opposite. <laughs> and it's funny yeah. that they share a time slot. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, the The sentiment in our household was that uh, watching them back to back is not a good idea because it highlights just how aesthetically normy Game of Thrones <laughs> is. And it's like, I, you know, we watch that show largely just for like plot and because it's gotten our, it suckers into our brain and we can't not watch it because yeah, yeah. it's like, how would you talk to other humans? But I, I don't know, for me, it's like very clear that Twin Peaks is on a level that is not shared by something like Game of Thrones. But uh, sorry for people who are listening who hate me for saying that, but I, <laughs> I don't think anyone will like hate you true. for that. 
Uh, I th- my the, my only specific remark that I'll say, and then we can happily move on, is that I could not have rolled my eyes harder at. Uh, we never did talk about Tommen. Like, okay, really? That was that's how yeah. you're gonna do that, really? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, yeah, and I th- I think that this feeling of um of okay, I get it. I think the ultimate feeling for me on that is uh, with respect to Richard Horn. And like individually, I think the sequences that he's in where he does these horrible things are all very powerful and very, um, very visceral and intense. And, um, and I can't really imagine anyone other than Lynch getting away with like the sheer physicality of it. Things like when he's, um, when he's, uh, choking Mrs. Horn and simultaneously asking her for the combination while also like you know blocking her windpipe it's just like really and and i i picked up on this and many other people noticed as well there's like a serious clockwork orange vibe to that sequence with the way that johnny horn thankfully alive um is you know sort of pitched over and 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 sort of wailing and tied up while this is happening um so again sort of kubrickian vibes coming in as well but still like uh, beyond sort of the 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 new beat i guess of finding out that he has an explicit tie to the to the sheriff's department through uh, another wonderful character chad um yeah i'm i'm not sure how much more richard horn i really need in my life despite his fantastic nose um i don't know i'd have to i think i'd have to disagree on that that friend not that i not that anybody wants to see richard horn i mean i don't want to see richard horn but i i think that um for me, he his presence is like integral to this episode and the whole show. I think in a lot of ways, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we might have to build up to some of these points because I feel like it's going to take me a while to still work out some of this uh-huh. stuff. Um, but you know, this this episode is very much about abuse and about violence, uh, particularly violence against women. And I, the character of Richard Horan is so clearly central to all of that. And I think that there is something. I don't know, very interesting going on in terms of, again, this idea that we're expecting, with the return, we're expecting violence to come from very clear-cut places that we can predict, right? We're expecting violence to come from Evil Coop. We're maybe expecting violence to come from Bob, uh, now that Bob has been sort of, like, (laughs) resuscitated in some sense. Um, You know, and in that kind of sense, and maybe violence from, like, the Black Lodge or the woods or something. Um, and then Lynch and Frost, like, sort of go ahead and create a character that makes Evil Coop look tame. Like, makes Evil Coop look not that bad. And makes Bob look kind of tame, almost, in comparison. Which I, 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 A, I find interesting in terms of how it works with the larger thematics of, like, our willingness to, to keep wanting to kind of, like, curtail, like, to separate violence and make it come from, like, sort of, like, easily coded areas of, like, just sort of evil. And instead, they're constantly saying, actually, it's sort of everywhere. It's not in these places that you want to think that it's in. There's that part of it. Um, the Richard Horn stuff, I also thought there was some interesting stuff going on in this episode that his presence and his scenes really nailed down around, uh, here's my other, here's my other way of using the word, the return, um, in the sense here of, I think this episode is very much about cycles of violence as a form of return, like the idea of the kind of eternal return, uh, the sense of here, we have generational violence, um, between Evil Coop and Richard, you have the, again, sort of generational repetition between Shelley, and I always forget the husband's name. What's Shelley's, uh, sorry, uh, Shelley's daughter, Becky. What's Becky's guy's name supposed to be again? Do you remember? Ah, uh, he's just Caleb Landry-Jones to me. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember his name either, but but like this kind of stuff. I mean, this idea of like violence keeps coming back, and I, I do think it's interesting overall the sense in which this episode, again, kind of doubles down on what was being made clear in the early episodes, which is this idea that this violence here is no longer limited to something like Laura. And we'll come back to this because this idea of Laura being the one is clearly important here. But this idea that violence is no longer like 
focused on one person or one person's experience. It just sort of is everywhere and random, although again, primarily aimed at women. And I don't think that's a mistake. And I don't think this is Lynch and Frost just being misogynist. And I think there were some really kind of like irresponsibly written reviews, honestly, that I read that I was a little shocked about. Like how somebody could make the claim that because Richard Horn yells at Sylvia Horn, uh, this is your fault. Like you made this difficult, you know, AKA that's why I abused you. Like, because the show has Richard Horn yelled at, the show somehow agrees with Richard Horn. I mean, I think this episode is doing such interesting things around... Wait, somebody actually claimed that? Yes. Uh, somebody wrote that in a review for... I, and I only read it because I was purposely trying to find reviews that, uh, like, just sort of went full tilt calling the show misogynist. A counterpoint to what you're talking about, although also not a counterpoint, is um, the amazing and hilarious sequence of Candy... Uh, played by Amy Shields, um, who we've only seen in the background so far in her, like, essentially, like, Playboy Mansion outfit, um, very slowly stalking around uh, Robert Nepper and look trying to hunt for this fly. And then eventually, as we could all see coming about 90 seconds earlier, um, <laughs> just absolutely thwacking him on the side of the face with that remote and drawing blood. And... Like, from the reaction in that room, you would have thought she'd taken his eye out or something. Like, yeah. it's, and I think it's really, at first, I mean, it's first of all, just like a physically hilarious sequence. But also, it says something that, like, how much offhand violence against women have we seen? And then we get, like, this one instance of a woman accidentally hitting a man, and it's just like, the world is over. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it can't go the other direction. That felt like sort of an interesting reaction to me. I actually think that that sequence is like key to what this episode is doing and it would work very differently without it. I mean, I think having having it be thematized so clearly that like this a woman hitting a man is reacted to so differently. And like it and it calls up again this question of like what's going on with her as a character more generally, which is an interesting question. Uh but I think also when you see her later um when they're the Mitchum brothers are sort of back in the apartment, their apartment space, which by the way is maybe one of the more interesting uh, kind of set design setups that we've gotten so far in terms of the kind of classic like Lynchian apartment uh, house design stuff. Um, anyway, in that sequence, uh, you see Candy kind of crying in the back corner the whole time, right? It's supposed to be many hours later and she's mm-hmm. still like weeping over this. And at the end, you know, she chokingly kind of says, um, how could you ever love me after I did this to you? And I, like, I think, I think this was film crit Hulk, uh, is wrote about this for whoever he's, he or she is doing this for now. Um, where, where film crit Hulk po- pointed out like this, uh, I mean, could you imagine like a clearer sign of somebody who grew up being abused? Like this idea of like, you've done something wrong and so no one will ever love you again. And uh, like, I, I found that heartbreaking. It's like this mm-hmm. idea that she's sort of a victim of abuse, but then also just sort of very much highlighting like, the, the like crazy difference between the the um like homogeny and ubiquity and rapidity of like women being beaten up and like hurt versus what happens when a man is beaten right. up. I, I, yeah. I, anyway. I mean, she basically has a psychotic break because she hits Robert mm-hmm. Nepper. Like it's, and I I did think it was mostly just funny to be perfectly honest. Like when she goes out there and gives the guy like the the weather report. Yeah. When she's just supposed to bring him in. And that, how long do Nepper and Belushi just sit in that back room watching her do? It's like, what, two minutes, two and a half minutes? It's something like that. And and I, I thought that was a great joke. Like, by the way, I totally agree. All this stuff with Candy is funny. The scene where she hits Nepper and starts screaming in the beginning is quite hilarious just on its own. But um, like the scene with the with them waiting for her as they're watching her on the surveillance footage. Um, I thought that was like a great joke about the show very knowingly winking at audience members who who like feel like they're being put in that position of having to like <laughs> sit out and wait endlessly and then eventually just scenes. like god damn it <laughs> exactly i i thought that was kind of brilliant i was like they know what they're yeah. doing they uh, know. and i have to say like as someone who's like really enjoyed nepper's villains like in many many things over the years like stretching back to i think the first time i saw him was in the, the original prison break or something um like I think Nepper and Belushi is a really inspired pairing. I I don't think I'm super familiar with him from before, but I I do like them. But I like they're they're 
well, I don't know. I like them. I, I say that. I, I also, again, say that I kind of just want episodes that where we're not spending mm-hmm. 30 minutes with them. That's but fair. That's fair. I do. I do think that they were, um, they're both great. And I, and I sort of, again, I like this idea of the show kind of playing them as these like almost silly, like godfather wannabe kind of figures. Like they speak in sort of very silly dialogue almost. Yeah. Um, well, what's, what's interesting yeah. about them being cast is that Nepper really is known for like nasty, violent men. And uh, Belushi is known for, you know, goofy, you know, like like yeah. sitcom dad types. So they're both kind of meeting in the middle where they're both like they're asked to be kind of menacing, but also kind of silly. Um, so it's I mean, I guess it's a logical pairing in that sense. But anyway, um, um, well, I was going to ask before we forget, because I wanted to ask about Candy, because I, I thought it was fascinating, like how much the show puts front and center her kind of like mental space like whatever is going on you know what i mean like how Mm. in that sequence with the with the surveillance footage and everything how much time and kind of like uh thematic energy is given to this question of like what is the deal with candy Mm. (laughs) like like, what she is so out of it like i and and kudos to that actress who like totally nails it and gets such like I, I laughed really hard when they they finally get her attention when she's leaning against the wall. Her response of like, "Oh, like you want me to talk?" I don't know. <laughs> she just kills that. Yeah. But um, I I don't know. I found it quite fascinating. Like this move between her weeping and then her just being so absent. And and like I don't know if that's um again like thematizing something about the way women like women dressed like that certainly tend to get represented or if there's something literal there about like they're on drugs or something i don't know yeah because she seems to move between like being furniture and being conscious Mm. and then like when after the 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 hit happens like her her like her wires seem to be crossed so she no longer knows when to no longer be furniture um it's it's really it's like it is a great sort of comic and physical performance speaking of physical performance we have to talk about uh naomi watts again yeah we do um because i have to say her scene in the kitchen well i should say starting with the um, the doctor's office and then into the kitchen might has to be one of the 10 horniest performances of all time (laughs) like man or woman animal or vegetable like I realize there's makeup and hair involved, but still, come on. It I that whole sequence, Simon. I like I still don't really know what to make of it. Like I, I because as soon as it starts, like okay, well we'll get to the second part. But when they're in the doctor's office, um, Emily Stevens or somebody was writing about that scene, and I thought she had a good point, which was that it's it's interesting that the, even the doctor seems to get sucked into mm-hmm. this idea that like because Dougie physically looks good, he must be healthy. I don't know. There's there's something interesting about that idea. Like they're all so distracted by what Dougie looks like that everybody forgets to actually pay attention to the fact that he still can't do anything but repeat what everybody else is saying. Um, but like these shots of McLaughlin with his shirt off, like when when that sequence first started. I was like, you know, like, whew, is it hot in here? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know what to, how to explain it. Like, it, at first it just felt very um, odd. Like, I, I was like, really? Like, are, we're supposed to be sort of like, like, I don't know. It it's, draws such attention to itself that it almost reads as like, just sort of strange. And then you kind of realize what's going on with Naomi Watts looking at him. Um I don't know. It it again, it is so rare to see scenarios in which men are not clothed and women are like lusting after them in that kind of a way. It is so rare and Lynch totally manages to like come up with this here it completely throws you off again you know another in his like arsenal of being able to throw you off um and then you get to to naomi watts at the house later and it that it opens on the shot of her shoes with her feet sort of coming out of her shoes and and you know exactly where the scene is going like you know what's gonna happen and my first thought was is this like okay like (laughs) isn't he like a child like is this like is this some kind of weird like rape scenario like and of course it really it seems not like you you're sort of like no he's an adult so it's okay i guess but it it's very strange i don't know but she totally sells it like she totally wins you over completely sells it i don't know it's amazing the my favorite part of like the doctor sequence especially is just imagine imagining lynch's directions for it just like (laughs) kyle your hot stuff take off your shirt (laughs) i can't do it justice funnier in my head 
I don't know. I loved everything about both scenes. The um, you're right that like we really don't like this this very female gazy sequence. Although, as you point out, it's really male and female gaze. It's <laughs> <laughs> true, doctor and female doctor gaze. and yep. female gaze. Uh, it's extremely unusual. Um, if anything, I, okay, a couple things we have to talk about. First of all, the like. I, I couldn't tell at first because I thought maybe where the scene was going was going to be she was going to be all hot and bothered. But then he was just going to keep eating his cake and she would get frustrated and the scene would be over. Yeah. Like, that's sort of what yeah. you expect. But no, like, she can see that he's just very he's lusting over cake and nothing else. Um, <laughs> and then, like, we I, I kind of if anything, if there's anything I could have wanted out of those five minutes we didn't get, it would have been the seduction. Like, I know. I want to know how that happened. <laughs> if anything, it feels like a bit of a cheat that we cut straight to, you know, the act. It is true. I do feel like there probably could have been some good some good comedy. There could have been that missing seven minutes of comedy exactly. in there somewhere. Exactly. Um But but that being said, like there there definitely could have been comedy in there. But I think I think the fact that you don't really see a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's not like the scene isn't explicit. There's obviously some explicit elements to it. Um, And of course, like Dougie's hands bouncing up and down is going to go down in like meme history. It's amazing. Um, How did he steal my move from above? (laughs) Simon. (laughs) Okay. No. Okay, uh, becoming composed again, talking about things. What the hell is? Oh, okay. So cut the the like cutting over the seduction scene. Um, there's something in there about what happens afterwards, which is that we get the scene. You know, like we get the kind of like a uh, very like um, I don't know how to describe it. See the scene where we sort of move over the the bed sheets at the end up to like Dougie and Janie's like you know smiling beautific faces at the end, uh, and then the next morning when when Janie pulls him aside and says I was just still thinking about last night and like it was like love you it was wonderful. Both of those scenes, I like the sweetness, like could just chip your teeth, you know, but not in a in an ironic or insincere way. Like again, these are the classic things where, like, of course these are a little silly. Like, of course it's it's pushed to eleven, just a little too far. But at the same time, that scene where she like kisses him the next day, and it actually seems like Dougie is sort of semi present, like in his this sort of intimate moment with her. I found them quite affecting, and like. I don't know. I think there's there's something pairing there about like the privacy that's given largely to this seduction that happens between them, mixed with this kind of um, sense in which they do actually seem to ha- to be developing this sort of very sincere kind of yeah intimacy later. I, d- I don't know. I had I had lots of feelings about yeah, the scene with them. It's, it's, after, it's, yeah, it's really quite a thing that we now sort of root for them as as a pair. Yeah. Like that's especially considering one of them is barely a person. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, I mean, the other thing we haven't even mentioned is like sort of the complicating shot of that sequence, which is the cutaway to, uh, young Sonny Jim, who can (laughs) clearly hear everything that's happening. Uh, another, again, it sort of sets you up to expect that he's going to waltz in. Um, thankfully that didn't happen. I mean, that's, no one needs to see that. And I'm not sure how, like what precise, what was the precise intention of having him clearly hear it? Um, if that's going to play, you know, sort of play into anything later, but I did think it was sort of a an interesting wrinkle that I did not see coming. I mean, I didn't see a lot about that scene coming, to be honest. Um, anyway, I feel like I feel like uh, Twin Peaks Twitter has been talking a lot about Dougie having sex, like because this is apparently what people talk about on Twin Peaks Twitter. But I feel like I've definitely seen people making predictions about that for a while. Actually, um, the the stuff with Sunny Jim, my guess is that that's more just part of Lynch's sort of ongoing uh, fascination with like these moments of like childhood and like kind of the edge of loss of innocence or something, you know, like children dealing with things they don't understand. Like that would be my guess. My guess is it isn't going to go anywhere in terms of plot, but yeah. um, anyway, um, yeah. moving on. So over the last, especially last episode, we talked a lot about um, Diane and um, sort of the issue of the message. And mm-hmm. this week we seem to get confirmation of what we sort of, resisted last week which is this yeah. uh direct um diane and bad coop cahoots um which you know obviously there could be some element of coercion involved uh we're not sure but i mean it is more or less confirmed this week so how are we feeling about that 
Yeah, I, well, the first time I watched the episode, I was not happy about it. I mean, it's it's almost like being kicked when you're down. This idea that we have a whole episode that seems to focus so heavily on the sort of repetition of, like, violence against women. Um, although, again, we'll talk about how there's counterbalancing stuff there, here. But um, it seems to focus so heavily on that the first time you watch it. Uh, and then... To boot, after we've watched Richard Horn like abuse his grandmother and his uncle, and it's such such a horrible scene, then we find out that Diane is evil or whatever. Like the Diane might be evil, or the Diane isn't like good or whatever. And and it felt very much like um, this one carpet that we maybe thought we would still have under us of like having Diane be be a kind of like quote stronger female character whatever in the show was sort of yanked out from under us and I for me that felt very hard the first time around on repeated viewings I don't think it's that simple and I I, my guess um you already sort of pointed this out Simon but my guess is that there is possibly a chance that there will be some element of coercion that Diane is sort of being forced to do this stuff for whatever reason you know whether or not that's true I guess we'll find out but the thing that I did also sort of figure out on the rewatch which I haven't figured out how I feel about it, but having having Diane, having it turn out that she is messaging Cooper about whatever, uh, means that the show has gone the tricky direction of having a woman lie about being abused by a man, which is uh, hard. I mean, like, you know, like, again, Diane never actually says anything to the effect of, like, I've been abused or I've been sexually abused by this guy. So it So it's not quite so cut and dry. But she is using she uses the performance of having been hurt very badly by evil cooper to manipulate the emo- like to manipulate the reactions of cole and albert and other people and that is a very dicey area to get into and i um again i don't think i would never just say oh so the show is misogynist because it's showing women lying i really don't think it's that simple but i what i'm sort of unclear about is like whether i kind of admire like the show's willingness to go into such touchy territory and or or whether i think it's just unconscious i mean i think that's for me the question here but i don't know i'm just not convinced yet that that's the case i mean mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that it completely did happen and then yeah yeah, exactly. And like possibly in the intervening time or po- or in the immediate aftermath, something happened that she's been like under his thumb ever since. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, this is one of those things that, you know, we, we always talk about like, don't expect this to get answered. But this is one of the things I really expect to get ironed out. Um, yes. It would be very strange if it didn't, even by Twin Peaks standards. Um, but I'm not convinced that what you're saying is happening is happening quite yet. Well, it's it's interesting though because like I think I think that what the the point you're making totally makes sense if you think about only the sequence where she's in the jail cell with uh, Evil Coop and she's going through this and it's like this very much could be a space where she's sort of using the opportunity to like call out this guy who is possibly still coercing her into doing things, um, which I think and 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 that she's still very upset. The question arises then when you have Gordon Cole in this episode saying, I could tell that something was off when she hugged me, which which is this like moment where, you know, now we're Cole, we're like now we're having Diane and and Cole pit against each other there. Right. Like one of them is wrong Mm -hmm. and one of them is right or something. And so it's again, I don't know how to feel about that. Like, we'll see where that goes. But I think there's very interesting kind of opposition yeah. set up there or something speaking of cole i cannot be the only one who thought he was gonna buy it in this episode for a second oh there. i thought so definitely i definitely thought so too and yes. yeah when he sees the vision of laura and and frankly like now that we've had that scene i'll be more surprised if he survives than if he doesn't me as well uh because holy crap that just yells foreshadowing to me uh just we should note that sequence it's a very strange sequence um to have this like this blown out uh, image of Laura, of Laura just appear in the hallway like that, even by the standards of the imagery we've had so far, it's a really, it's a really odd sequence. We should point out for people who are listening, who, who maybe don't get our original reference here. The reason why we both thought that Lynch would, would be killed in this episode is because that whole, like the, the, 
setup of that scene so clearly is meant to recall Coop answering his hotel room door yeah. at the end of season one when it opens and he gets shot by somebody who later turns out to be Josie, which may or may not have been what the writers were thinking at the time. Anyway, but um, so it's set up very similarly. So it's like you're sort of expecting there to be uh, him be shot or whatever. And instead, we get this image of Laura that's that's blown up like so it's, you know, it reads as these very large proportions uh, visually on the screen. Uh, for people who don't recognize it, it's a shot taken from Fire Walk With Me. It's the scene in Fire Walk With Me where Laura has just seen her father coming out of the house uh, after seeing Bob in the house. So she has just put together that her father is Bob. Um, and she she runs to the Hayward's house and Donna opens the door and, and Laura is like sobbing incoherently and asks, do you love me mm-hmm. to, to Donna? And, like, the idea of, like, taking that out and inserting it here is so, I don't know, like, evocative. I mean, it's like, I, I've already seen many different people making many different things of that scene. I, it's, there's a lot there. I haven't been reading theories so much this week, so I'm curious what, if there were some, maybe some more interesting interpretations uh, kicking around. Oh, God, I, the only one I can recall off the top of my head right now is, I think, um, I think Miriam Bale at, it has got this thing going where on Twitter where she is positing that Cole might be evil, that like there might be something bad with Cole, that he's up to no good or something, which, which is kind of interesting. And, and there are like possibilities there that I think it sort of solves some, some issues that the show has had. If, if that does turn out to be true, I don't really think it will turn out to be true, but um, this idea of like Laura, you know, weeping in front of him maybe is this reference of like him being linked to Bob. I, I don't really buy that. That that one doesn't make much sense for me. Um, I think more, I, I don't know, for me, it just read as like Cole being sort of somewhat in tune with this kind of other worldliness of the show, right? Like that he seems to be sort of linked into, um, I don't know, whatever's going on. Yeah. And, and and Laura's return here seems to be one of these things that we're getting more and more of, right? I mean, we have both the scene with her there and then we have Margaret or the log lady at the end of the episode saying Laura is the one. So this seems to be something. Which, can I just say, was not expecting another log lady appearance. I really wasn't expecting another. That, that was the other thing that for me felt very much like we were back at the pilot mm-hmm. was log lady yeah. coming back. Yeah. The Laura scene... Yes, it is very strange. For me, it recalls the scene uh, in, oh, when is it? Maybe the pilot of, it's either the pilot or like one of the early episodes of the original run where Donna goes to see Laura's mother and Laura's mother superimposes Laura's face Mm -hmm. onto Donna. Like it it felt something like that, like just this very extreme, odd effect. Like it doesn't, it's not supposed to read as naturalistic at all. I I don't know. Um, At this point, like, I think it's kind of fun to, make predictions because we do only we only have eight episodes left we're past the halfway mark people um so unless of course one of the i i I do know that the 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 final night that the show airs they will be airing two episodes like they did at the start of the season um but you know i'm expecting eight regular length episodes and um i think it's kind of fun to think about what we what we think we can reasonably expect to see in that time span um, and maybe what we reasonably can't. Like, will we see James again? I'm putting my money down right now. No more James. I don't think it's going to happen. Will we Will we see Denise again? I'm also thinking no to that. I actually think it's more likely we see James again than, than Denise. I'd kind of forgotten about Denise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think. I don't think we're going to get more Denise. Um, I saw a great tweet yesterday about how uh, some, someone, someone received the insult that Twin Peaks is just the X-Files for people who like Neutral Milk Hotel. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I just really enjoyed that. The reason I'm bringing up predictions is because, like, I will be more surprised than not, again, um, if there isn't some kind of new physical manifestation of Laura that we get. Because it seems to be so heavily implied over and over in these episodes. Mm. You mean like like her in the in the world, like yeah, back in the world, like, uh, literally resurrected somehow? That's interesting. I I don't know about that, but uh, I mean it would be great. Like I'm I I want Cheryl Lee around as much as possible. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. I feel like it might be more that she ends up doing something from the other world, like mm-hmm. that she has a role. She has a role to play in all of this from the the red from the White Lodge or, or wherever she is now. Um, See, I, yeah. I say this stuff now, but then next week, every single character is played by James Marshall. 
So <laughs> who knows? Um, there's a couple of other sort of important things that we haven't talked about, like for that matter, um, Miguel Ferrer and uh, Jane Adams giving us a little bit of fan service. Yeah. That was nice. I don't have much else that to say nice. about it. It was nice. It was a rare moment of niceness. I, for me, all I I couldn't help but find one aspect of that scene a little weird, which was that, like, I was so happy to see Albert and Constance on a date. That was, like, the greatest thing ever. And then you cut back to, uh, you know, Gordon Cole watching this and calls over Tammy. And, you know, at first it's, like, the look on their faces is, like, so great. And it's, like, they're enjoying this so much. And then it's, like, you know, Lynch has his arm around her waist. And I'm, like, oh, so this is one of those workplaces where the your boss, who's... 40 years older than you puts his arm around your waist. Oh, at least 40 years older, yeah. (laughs) I just was like, I I don't know what's going on here. It's like, again, like, I don't know. The show, for me, that's just one of those moments where I'm like, I really can't tell if this is part of the show thematizing something or if this is just them not understanding that it's weird (laughs) (laughs) to have somebody's boss put their arm around yeah no anyway you know it's he's he's a man from another era man what can i tell you um true and sometimes he reminds you of that unless of course it is deliberate and cole is evil in which case i take it all and actually to be honest (laughs) cole i hadn't thought of the, the prospect of cole being evil and it would really it would solve all of my grievances about the show's uh rosy depiction of the fbi um Mm. so that would be cool but, you know, again, yeah. I, I don't really expect it. But, hey, if it's true, then hats off to Miriam Bale for figuring it out nice and early. Um, what else can we discuss in this episode? Oh, I guess we should talk about, you already mentioned it, but I I knew the line was coming because it was like the log line for the episode. But Laura is the one. The way that the show keeps recentering around Laura, even as, like, the show is seems to be determined to spin out in every other possible direction at the same time. Um, it's very interesting to me. And again, I, I feel like that has to pay off in some major plot way that is like, maybe not so obvious. And in fact, maybe the physical manifestation is too obvious, but um, I don't know. I, I find it really interesting the way that the show is like constant, like of, of all the, it, it, it constantly makes clear that it's still about her. It's still about that case. It's still about what happened to her. Um, it's still about, you know, her being in some way special, uh, even as it's, you know, introducing us to 75 new characters is, uh, is very interesting. And I'm not sure what to make of it yet. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I think, like, I, I definitely think there will be plot ramifications for it, but I think um, on like a formal level, there's something interesting going on there with, Again, this tension where you have, uh, what, three, what, is it only three? Three women being sort of brutalized uh, and murdered, some of them murdered in this episode. Uh, and so, again, it's this this sense, this thing that I've been kind of talking about a lot in these episodes, podcast episodes lately, of Lynch... Um, playing things out across multiple people, right? Like, and, and here, here it's not this idea that these women are indistinguishable. These women here are all characters that we've been introduced to before and we know things about them. So it's not quite that sense. But there is, again, the sense I already said at the beginning of like violence just sort of spreading out in all directions. Um, but I think what is interesting with the show continually coming back to Laura and like keep putting Laura forward in our mind is this idea that just because the sort of violence is spreading out across women... I don't know. The show is not willing to give up this idea that that doesn't mean that uh, that it matters what happens to each and every single individual, right? And like Laura is the person who stands in for that. Like Laura is always has always been the character that stands in for this idea that like you know she's a specific person and like the the tragedy of her life matters. Like this this it you know it matters that she was abused and beaten and raped by her father and like destroyed. Like you know it matters thirty years later. I, like I, I don't know. I still think that is a really kind of amazing gesture and I think it goes a long way towards again opposing any simplistic idea that the, the, sh- the show is just misogynist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's actually um there's a couple things from last week we didn't get the chance to talk about because we were at least I was distracted in my directorial duties by what was happening um and i just wanted to bring them up to get your your take on them one of which connects to this episode but the first of them doesn't how are we feeling about tim roth and jennifer jason lee 
<laughs> Tim Roth. Um, I forgot to bring that up too. Um, somebody, I I read somebody on Twitter saying that they had been really hoping that Tim Roth was going to play uh, Philip Jeffries. Like they, Tim Roth was going to. That take was over that for- was my guess as well. Oh, was it interesting? Um, I was completely shocked when Tim Roth showed up on that last episode. I was like, what? I'd completely forgotten he was on the cast list. But then again, like, credit to him as an actor, right? I mean, like, three seconds into it, you've sort of forgotten that he's this celebrity. and he, Well, celebrity maybe is a bit strong, but he's this, like, big name. Um, that you've kind of forgotten that right away. And, like, his, I thought his performance was really strong. I mean, I thought he really, like, was great in that scene. Um... I don't know, this whole weird thing with, like, him presumably being married to Jennifer Jason Leigh and having Jennifer Jason Leigh, like, kiss Dougie in this sort of extravagant, excessive way. Like, I don't know, that scene was bananas. Um, I couldn't help but thinking that he reminded me of, like, a season one of Justified Villain of the Week. Like, uh, I just kept waiting for Raylan to show up and plug him full of holes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's just weird to see two, like, so high-profile, like, great, great actors in, like, really, like, determinedly minor parts. And I mean, like, minor in the sense that they're both, like, hench people um, who are just, like, they don't seem to have a ton of defining characteristics. Like, I'm not really a complaint. It's just weird. Like, the, the hierarchy of who, of, like, what, which actors get what parts in the show is really funny to me. That's one of the things I like I like about Lynch is like he's gonna give like a lead to a non actor kind of no one that no one's ever heard of and then like the biggest biggest people around are gonna get tiny parts. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy that about him. But anyway. The other thing, um we didn't discuss this last week, I don't think, and it does come up again this week, is um the continuing ballad of uh, Beverly and Ben Horn. Mm-hmm. And um of course last week we had them um once again hearing what we assume to be um the Josie frequency and um and then sort of bumping into each other and Ben saying oh we can't I don't know why I just can't um which has to be the only time in the history of Twin Peaks that anyone has like declined a boning session (laughs) it's the only time that's ever happened um that I can recall I mean admittedly Ben Horn is about 102 years old but still um (laughs) And then again, this week, we do have him just sort of calling out to Beverly after he has that that rather um, upsetting phone call. I was just wondering how we're feeling about the state of the, the state of Ben and Beverly, or maybe just Ben generally. Um, yeah, Ben and Beverly, I, like, I don't know about Beverly, but um, uh, sorry, hold on for one second, I just have to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the, yeah, Beverly, I don't know, it's been a while since we've sort of had much with her, so she's not really on my mind. But the, the scene with Ben, I found interesting here because i liked it because it sort of is very much a callback to older ben in the Mm -hmm. sense of like slight slight moral turpitude here like his his still wife i mean they're still married he's still wearing the wedding ring um his still wife calls him to say i've been brutally attacked and robbed by our grandson and he seems he's like sucks to be you concerned yeah exactly he's like "Mm, too bad for you uh (laughs) and um yeah exactly that's and it's like yes of course you're supposed to intuit that there's been this long sort of acrimonious history between them like sure whatever but his immediate response to this phone call is like a he's like i'm not sending you any more money and then b his response is beverly do you want to get dinner and it's like there's such a clear like you know, it's almost laughable, like how opposite this response is from what it maybe should be. I, yeah. Well, it's anyway. it's kind of a great callback to how Ben has sort of always been, right? I mean, he's this yeah. guy who's like he seems to have these these periods in his life where he like wants to shun who he used to be, and then like, and maybe he yeah. he does actually make inroads on that. Um, although it is kind of telling that when he talks to Beverly and he's like. I can't, I don't know why. It's not like, uh, yeah, I'm married. Sorry. Like it's, it's just like, I don't, there's some amorphous reason that I can't put my ring finger on why it's it's happening. I just don't know. Well, and Jerry, and I think Jerry says, I think Jerry says in the, one of the, in the pilot, maybe even something about how he's had like a string of women in the last while. It it hasn't been, it hasn't been that long, you know? Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought that like character wise, that was a very kind of a, sort of smart um yeah evocation of the old old ben horn um, yeah. I, I, yeah i will say i have a general question to throw out there and it has to do with it, it it occurred to me when we were talking about the um the doctor's room sequence and 
the way that that sequence exploits in liter in like every possible sense, like specific physical attributes of Kyle McLaughlin and like really like that's a sequence that was clearly conceived around the fact that he's quite fit and they knew it mm-hmm. and they knew that they could write it and perform it and you know all that good stuff. McLaughlin is the only one, the only one of the performers that we know of who was really apprised to everything the show was doing and everything the character was about. Um, and, you know, in like a, tra- in a fairly traditional way, like if, if this were any other show, like, you know, major, every major actor would know their arc. Everyone would know what the sort of season arc was. Everyone would know what the, what the show was after. And Lynch, as we, you know, as we know generally from how he works, as we know more specifically from stuff like the interview with Lillard, who was just totally in the dark or very nearly totally in the dark as to what his character about. So... My question is, um, do we think that maybe uh, Lynch is using these techniques? Do we think that the the way that Lynch treats his actors sometimes maybe hobbles the performance possibilities and the writing possibilities inadvertently? Wait, who? Sorry, I forget. Who did we start off talking about? McLaughlin? Are you? Or like, just in, is there somebody you're thinking of specifically here, or just sort of everybody? No, there's. I mean, I'm just saying that McLaughlin is 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 a special case because he's the one who like knew everything, and he's all. You know, obviously, he's the one that's in it the most. I'm just wondering if, hmm. um, do you think maybe there's anyone in the cast or any characters who would have benefited from from knowing more, from being able to flesh out like a uh, a more lived in performance, maybe. That's interesting. I mean, I think maybe, but I also think like the opposite question totally holds true, which is uh, how many how many types of like performance opportunities are lost in the other model with the over reliance on a kind of like psychological, like the creation of a psychological interiority and like mm-hmm. and also the knowledge of where a character is going. I mean, how often you know we don't know where we're going in life. I mean, and again, we don't all just have to be aiming for like naturalist performance styles, but. Um, You know, like, I I do think that that is really only sort of one way of doing it. And I think that Lynch is so good at creating performances that are so much about these sort of, like, effective bubbles, right? I mean, like, like Janie's character, it's like, I I can't imagine that that character from Naomi Watts would be improved by her having some sense of, like, Janie's backstory or or Janie going forward, you know? It's like, they, they create that amazing character out of... Uh, you know, these moments of being like, she has this kind of attitude or like, this is sort of how she responds. You know, it's like, I, I can't think of a good example um, of what Lynch would say, of course, because I'm not Lynch, but I can't, you know, I just imagine him giving her some crazy direction that's as much about like the physicality or some remembered object or something as much as it is about any kind of psychology. Um, yeah, I don't know. Imagine you're looking at the God of love. Um, yeah, the, I yeah, mean, exactly. I, I kind of feel like you're stacking the deck by using her as an example, though, because like you're right. I Naomi am, Watts true. is like clearly one of the best actors of her generation. And, you know, I'm not sure that's true. Like not to not not to diminish anyone in like the massive supporting cast. But, you know, lots of not the best actors of their generation in there. Um, like, <laughs> no, there can only be so many of you. All right. Like, no, you're, you're totally right. It's just a funny way to put it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just I when I think about how well they use McLaughlin and like how, um, how layered that performance is, I sometimes wonder about like what might've been, but you know, it's just, it's an idle thought that I had. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like I, I, well, I mean, we've obviously talked about Tammy Preston as a, as a character where we're not really sure what's going on with the performance choices there. But, um, but I mean, even, even a character like in this episode, like Sylvia Horn, uh, who's played by Jan, Darcy, I think is that actor's name. Um, you know, Sylvia Horn has been in the show since the the pilot. Like, she's been around in these episodes for a long time, and we don't see her very much. And Lynch brings her back and gives her all of this stuff to do. And, and again, I can't imagine she was given much information beyond just this scene. And I don't know. I, I I thought she I thought she worked really well. Um, we we haven't talked about that scene that much, and I, I kind of would like to talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, let's but, do that. Um, yeah, do you want to talk? Yeah, like how how did you how did it strike you, Simon? That, that I mean, I know you said you're kind of like over Richard Horn, but like, were there other things that struck you about it? Um, well, again, I was happy to see that Richard Horn was not dead. Um, I, I I keep forgetting the the oh Johnny Horn, you mean Johnny? Sorry, uh, I keep yes. Whoops. Um, I was glad that I, yeah, I wouldn't be glad for that. Uh, I was glad that, um, that Johnny was not dead. I, I kept forgetting the, the cardinal, 
rule of television, which is that if you don't see the heart stop or the or like them get buried, they're not dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I somehow forgot that. Um, but um, beyond that, I, uh, I I I'm not sure I have any specific thoughts about that sequence. Beyond wow, this sure is like next level cruel. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it. I just think it deserves commentary that like Lynch has again managed to maybe even top himself in terms of producing a scene of like that cruelty. I mean, I you know like I one of the people I read writing about this episode sort of talked about it in the same same way that you would talk about like they they compared it to scenes like um, Frank uh, the Dennis Hopper character like raping Isabel Rossellini in Blue Velvet yeah. or the horrifying scenes with Bobby Peru and Laura Dern and Wild at Hearts and like a few other ones um, you know and like put this scene kind of up there and and I agree I mean I, I found that scene very difficult to watch and it's um, it's again heightened by just how how like silly a lot of it is at first i mean you open on this extremely silly tableau of johnny done up in this crazy get up with this like where he's all bandaged but like tied to a chair in a ridiculous way and and this bizarre like uh bear thing that lynch this is clearly one of lynch's like creations that he fabricated himself it looks so much like his paintings and his kind of sculpture stuff um and the bear is like repeating over and over the hello johnny how are you today uh voice and like it's all so kind of strange and bizarre and then you quickly flip into this like terror with richard um and it's and it's so excessive like not just in the sense of the physical stuff right i mean like he physically sort of assaults her and the cinematography is all very interesting there with the camera kind of like over Johnny Horn's shoulder and so we're very much put in the position of like the abuser mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff um there's that but then there's also the really hyper excessive um like uh, verbal abuse on top of that which is a, which is a theme yeah, right i mean yeah. it links it it links it back to uh <laughs> what's his nuts a uh, uh, Caleb Caleb Landry Jones like who doesn't physically touch Becky in that scene but is you know, that scene just sort of really perfectly illustrates how it's a sometimes a bullshit distinction to make between emotional abuse and physical abuse. Yeah. Like the, the dam the damage is there no matter what. And it's anyway, but sorry, were you gonna say No, that? can we rewind for a sec? Did you say what's his nuts? <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure I didn't hallucinate that. Um well and also interesting is the fact that, you know, in the middle of this sort of triumvirate of um really awful sequences like the Caleb Blandry Jones scene and the two sequences with Richard Horn doing terrible things. We get this really lovely sequence of Harry Dean Stanton singing a song, yeah. uh, which by the way, he just turned 91 a couple days ago. Uh, don't know what kind of super crack he's been using or there's been stuffing into his cigarettes all these years, but I need some. Uh, Cause he mm-hmm. even, he sounds good. Like his, his voice sounded good. We, uh, Olivia and I watched that documentary about uh, Harry Dean Stanton that's available now. There's like a documentary, and Lynch makes an appearance in it. Lynch sort of interviews Stanton for like maybe 15 minutes in it. Um, and a lot of it is just Harry Dean Stanton singing. And it's kind of amazing. Like it's him It's him sort of being like, I really wish I had pursued music. It's always something I wanted to do. And, you know, he's not a big talker, but he will like sing at length. And he has a beautiful voice. Anyway, that's a side note. Go find that film if people are interested because Harry Dean Stanton's amazing. Hey, hey Harry it's not too late man cut a record it's easier than ever <laughs> it's true um what's what's the movie called i'd be curious to see that i think it's called harry dean stanton partly fiction okay i think yeah i need to check that out because he's the man um there's also um just for people who are interested there's also another movie coming out soon called lucky that was directed by john carroll lynch that stars harry dean stanton and david lynch plays a supporting role in it and it's a film about a guy who's in his 90s uh which is stanton like sort of living in this town uh i've only seen the trailer for it but it looks pretty good i've heard good things about it anyway there's no relation between david and john carroll is there no olivier <laughs> thought that too it was funny olivier was like oh lynch's son directed it and i was like no. Lynch's son and then no you, re- you remember who john carroll lynch is and you're, you're like, like that's definitely not david lynch's son anyway anyway um we are we are just about to hit the hour mark so i i think given that it was a slightly shorter episode of television perhaps we should make this a slightly shorter episode of the podcast womp womp however All right. uh, i will i have i have one more yeah to make, i figured ahead. you would no that's that was the opening i was going to give you <laughs> All right. Simon knows me well enough to know that I have to get a solid ramble in at the end. But um, I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to hit the point a little harder about some of the stuff around like the, the violence and the misogyny and everything in this episode, because I 
I don't know. Like, I, I saw a couple of responses that, like, really weirded me out. One, one of the things that I have been sort of mystified by that I see pretty continuously on, like, film uh, Twin Peaks Twitter is this idea that there should be a cut of the series that, like, excises the musical numbers from the show. That everybody's like, oh, well, when they put this together as an 18-hour thing, they should just take out the musical numbers um, because they're clearly just, like, bookends. And I find this to be such a mystifying attitude that I, like, I really don't agree with that. And I think this episode particularly highlighted... Um, I think what a disservice you're doing to yourself as a spectator if you approach the musical numbers that way. I mean, I think... This the musical number here with Rebecca Del Rio singing the song at the end of the episode, uh, which was called No Stars, and it was written by her and David Lynch and one other person. Um, like the song and the effective space of her on the stage is so important to the whole episode. Uh, I find it crazy that you would think like, oh, this is just a bookend. And and Lynch again like really highlights that with the length. I mean, we have like four and a half minutes of the song before the credits come on, whereas the other ones I think do generally largely just play over the credits. We maybe get like thirty seconds to a minute of the song before the credits start. Um, but here, I think this is maybe the closest scene that we've had to like the more classical scenes of the original series in the Roadhouse, where Julie Cruz singing on the stage sort of participates in a kind of larger like effective landscape of the episode and and for me re-watching this episode the part where um Rebecca Del Rio gets to like the refrain of the song and starts singing no stars no stars and like the narrative of the song is starts with her reminiscing about this sort of night when she met her love and then it it goes sort of bad and like they're in or well they're they end up in a world without stars right which mimics um mirrors what the log lady says earlier with like the light is dying the glow of the world is dying and we're in the space of no stars and i again for me like that scene is so integral to a defense against any idea that this show is simply like reveling in violence against women for its own sake i think it's much more about grieving the tragedy of what happens to and i'm quoting somebody else here but i thought this was a really strong point like the traumas, uh, the quote traumas faced by strong-willed women in the world, like the way, the way women are 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 beaten and abused, and like the show is asking you to spend five minutes at the end of it and just sit with that as like a realization. And again, I think this really plays into the idea that the show is thematizing like. It's forcing us to reckon with our wish that the show would just take us to this nostalgic space where everything is good again and everything could be fine and the whole world could be the way it used to be back in the day and everything could be great. And the show is continually reminding us, like, that wasn't what Twin Peaks was about in the first place and the world isn't like that. And, like, to read reviews where people are like, well, this show should show the men that are killing these women or the men that are abusing women being punished. It's like... Yeah, because that's so often how it happens when men hurt women in real life. I, I just, like, I I think the show is so much more interesting than that. And I think that I found that Rebecca Del Rio scene heartbreaking, particularly the second time. Like, it tears in my eyes the second time. So just to plea to people to don't don't turn off or don't, like, stop mm-hmm. watching or stop enjoying when the music comes on. Because I think it matters here. It's, um, it's interesting that that's the sequence so far. That I mean, the chromatic song came kind of close, but that's really... Yeah. This is really the most Julie Cruz-esque number that we've gotten, like the most sort of classically Twin Peaksian, and yet the sentiment of the song like couldn't be further away. Like it's it's the yeah. opposite of idyllic. It's funny that people would bring up that. I mean, I don't know if people were specifically targeting this episode for ma. They should cut out the musical numbers because there are so many other more obvious episodes where the musical numbers seem more tacked on, like the one with the cactus blossoms, or for that matter. The two episodes featuring Au Revoir Simon, who, like, yeah. I know, at least this is a bit of a random trivia, but, like, Lynch is obviously just a really big fan of theirs because, like, he, they talked about how um, they were playing a show somewhere once and some some guy turned up, like, super early before everyone else because he was such a big fan and it turned out to be David Lynch. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Um yeah, that's that would be that would be for me the only reason to start and be in a band would be to have David Lynch and or like Keanu Reeves turn up in the audience. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would start a band for that purpose. But other than that, it's not really my thing. <laughs> I mean, knowing Lynch, he may very well have had ulterior motives, but I'm going to choose to think that he didn't. 
Yes. Um, anyway, so like it just it seems weird of all the episodes like to to level that accusation or that. Wish no, this I was week. I was a little shocked. I was a little shocked to see that after this episode because I just felt like it was such an integral part of the episode that I was like, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there are other ones where you could be like, you don't need to watch them, but I. I don't know. I have to admit, I've I've spent the last like week kind of listening on a loop to the um, Twin Peaks soundtrack, and it, like just because I want to, it's this like weird thing where it just sort of gets in my head and I can't get it out. But um, I don't know. I, I think that the show should be taken as a whole, and like the music here is clearly a choice. I mean, whether or not it's always necessarily that integral to the episode, I think it sort of matters as part of the universe. Maybe. I don't yeah. Um, anyway, I'm sure we'll have more on this subject next week when we talk part eleven with a guest to be determined. Um, but, uh, thank you as always, Kate, for joining me and thank y'all as always for listening. Do feel free to rate review, etc. the show on iTunes. We have had a small uptick in reviews, but you know, what's even better than a small uptick is a bigger than small uptick. So, you know, just consider doing that because it would, it would make at least one of us happy. And, uh, yeah. And do check out, uh, sort of cinema.com where the, where the show is hosted And we will be back in roughly a week's time. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Candy, please don't let them in your heart because they.